the Oscillations podcast, where we invite you to participate in conversations at the intersection of art, culture, technology, and the science of the mind. I'm Danielle Perzik. And I'm Brendan Lewis. In the modern world, technology is all around us. It's hard to imagine a life without our phones, our cars, and our apps. When we think about what technology is, we typically think about physical inventions like light bulbs, steam engines, and laptops, along with the algorithms these machines run on. Most people would agree that technology, broadly speaking, refers to the tools we invent to solve problems and simplify things. Moreover, many would also acknowledge that these tools often create new problems and complicate things. For example, the internet has given us unprecedented access to information, but it has also accelerated the spread of misinformation. This means that we have to invent new technologies to manage the old ones. Within this cycle, we culturally co-evolve with our technologies. When we think about technologies as culture-shaping tools with which we co-evolve generally, rather than hardware and software specifically, it becomes clear that many things can count as technologies. Those of you who've listened to our previous podcasts know that my research focuses on language evolution. When I was making the transition from academia to tech, I had to give a talk as part of the interview process at Google. So I gave my dissertation talk, and in it, I described language as the original technology that defined Homo sapiens. My interviewers, though, found this very strange. They were used to thinking about technology in terms of the products they were building. Fundamentally, however, language is a technology, and it's one that set humans off on their current evolutionary trajectory. At Oscillations, we focus on technology, art, culture, and the science of the mind. All of these things come together in what psychology professor Judy Fan, director of the Cognitive Tools Lab at UC San Diego, calls cognitive technologies. Cognitive technologies are behaviors that shape our capacities to think, communicate, and imagine. I met Professor Fan earlier this year at a month-long conference called the Diverse Intelligences Summer Institute, or DC for short. As the name implies, Every summer, the Institute brings together an interdisciplinary group of scholars working on some aspect of intelligence. There are cognitive scientists like Judy and myself, philosophers, biologists, neuroscientists, artificial intelligence researchers, political scientists, and even writers and artists. DC also puts out a fantastic podcast called The Many Minds Podcast, which you should definitely check out if you're into the science of the mind. Today, we're talking with Professor Fan about some of her recent research, which integrates methods from cognitive science, computational neuroscience, and AI, to investigate how humans learn and link their minds together. This research has implications for understanding our cultural co-evolution with technology, our strategies for establishing common ground, and our predisposition to create art. Professor Fan, thank you so much for being with us here today. My very first question is about the name of your lab. So you're the director of the Cognitive Tool Lab within the psychology department at UC San Diego. What is a cognitive tool, or as you also call it, a cognitive technology? Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here on your show. Um, so it's a really good question. To me, a cognitive tool is a physical artifact that we've created or invented that helps us think, communicate, remember, plan, imagine, or any number of activities that we use our minds to do. And what I have in mind are essentially the vast suite of information technologies that we take for granted today. So 
writing, illustrations, mathematical notation, data visualization. Um, it's basically this really big toolkit that we've been tinkering with for millennia. And now, the vast majority of work on human cognition in my field, cognitive science, has tended to focus on what the mind does um, seemingly in the absence of these artifacts, like asking, like, why do we, you know, remember some things and not others? Like, what makes planning so hard? And I love those questions, too. But I think what's missing in many traditional approaches is the fact that in modern times, we routinely use physical objects to help us remember, like think of your to-do list, um, as well as help us plan. Think of your calendar. And I think that for a long time, we in cognitive science and cognitive psychology have tended to think of those artifacts as somehow incidental or external to human thinking rather than deeply intertwined with it. Mm, I love that. Yeah, I think recently psychology has kind of undergone a little bit of a, a revolution with recognizing that we are social creatures and that, you know, no brain is is in a vacuum and our nature is fundamentally social. But you're pushing that even further and saying all of the things around us that we interact with, we are affected by and, and shape our cognition. Yeah. And, you know, all that said, I, I don't exactly what you said, and I don't think of there necessarily being a super sharp boundary between what we should call a cognitive tool or cognitive technology or not. I mean, maybe number concepts come to mind here, but I do think the term helps to highlight just what you said, like how much of the way that we think, how we think, what we think is shaped both by culture and biology. That's great. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of your work has focused on drawing as an example of cognitive technology. So I wanted to ask, when did humans actually invent this technology and how has it changed since we invented it? How have we co-evolved with it and how has it even shaped modern science? Well, a long time ago is the short answer. Um, and it seems that archaeologists have been continually pushing the date further and further back with improved methods. At least as of a few years ago, my understanding of the consensus view is that drawing emerged between 40,000 and 70,000 years ago, and possibly independently in really different parts of the world, including Asia, Africa, and Europe. So this puts the emergence of drawing very much on a par with um, the emergence of other behaviors we associate with human culture, including the making of shoes and weaving, um, emerging quite a bit later than the earliest known stone tools um, and the taming of fire, but much earlier than other inventions like writing or ceramics. And what drawing let us do is basically communicate knowledge to other people over huge distances and huge gaps in time. So think of the famous cave paintings that are so iconic now. Even though these are our very distant ancestors, the images they created are still really evocative and at least somewhat intelligible to us. And I also suspect that the ability to draw helped to catalyze the discovery of really important ideas in science um, and key mathematical ideas. Like, can you imagine Euclid's famous work on geometry or the very idea of geometry without diagrams or algebra without the ability to write down variables and say whether you're adding or multiplying? And for millennia and certainly before the invention of photography, but arguably even since then, producing illustrations by hand was really a a critical part of the scientific process for making and sharing discoveries. Um, an example I love is 
um, John Gould, an ornithologist who worked with Charles Darwin, um, made the illustrations that are now really iconic of the finches from the Galapagos Islands. And it was really like Gould and his drawings that helped Darwin realize that he'd been collecting specimens of different kinds of finches, each adapted to the different island that it was from. So that's a you know, uh, just a few of the many ways in which the ability to um, produce these kinds of physical artifacts that render what we know or what we've observed has really helped to drive uh, progress in science over the years. Uh, that reminds me a little bit of language and, and sort of its effect too. So, you know, my background is in language development, language evolution, and I've come to think of language as a cognitive technology that stabilizes thought and allows us to, you know, link our minds together. But the thing about drawing that even pushes that further is that uh, you, you call it, it, it makes it more durable. So it's not only stabilizing our thought, but over space and time. And so even more than sort of the explosion that language allowed for in terms of our, our evolutionary trajectory, drawing was just another one of those inflection points that allowed us to really converge over space and time on the same ideas and then mm -hmm. increase the sort of complexity of those ideas, combine and recombine them in new ways. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I appreciate your bringing up the example of spoken language. You know, now we take for granted writing systems, like the ability to be able to transform uh, thoughts that we might say out loud into words that we might write down um, for others to read or for ourselves to read in the future. And um, there's some work um, um, by some archaeologists that I really love that has um, explored how the evolution of drawings and pictorial modes of representation have co-evolved with the emergence of symbolic writing systems that actually capture speech. Those writing systems emerged much later, maybe something in the ballpark of 30,000 years or so after the earliest known drawings appeared in the prehistoric record. But I do think that those are really great examples of, you know, how we've now figured out how to create these durable artifacts that encode both language, what we want to say, as well as what um, as, as well as what we perceive and know in the form of diagrams or figures or or maps. And these together have had a kind of um, multiplier effect on cultural evolution, um, really being, um, you know, having all these cascading effects for our ability to transmit knowledge across generations and thereby, you know, accelerate the rate of discovery um, and the way that we can, you know, bring even like, you know, uh, young children up to speed on all that we've collectively figured out over the course of thousands of years. Yeah, I think being able to recognize all of these different artifacts as cognitive technologies really helps that framework helps us understand how they have this reciprocal multiplying effect, like you say. If I could jump in yeah. while, while we're on this topic, and I know you plan to get more into the, into the science as we keep going, uh, but I wanted to bring in art a little bit here and, and go broad for a second and ask you to speculate on um, movements in art, because you're talking about this multiplier effect, you're talking about the rate of discovery, you're talking about the evolution in the way that people represent the world and then how children are raised to represent the world. And the, the 20th century has seen rapid movements in art. We, we've interviewed a few historians and art uh, critics now, uh, especially in the dance world, who 
talk about the kind of salon period in the early 20th century. And from like the mid 1800s through the 20th century, we saw what seems to me to be like a picking up of the pace um, in acceleration. And you had one movement in art after another. And the ways that people represented things changed dramatically, almost within like a half of a generation, maybe a generation. And then by the 1920s or 30s, it was like a half a generation, uh, maybe even a decade. And so I'm, I'd love you to speculate as to why you think movements happen generally. Is there some broad need or drive to express our context, the trends and the history of our time? Can you draw on your work to go that broadly? Well, I think, I mean, it's, it's a fabulous and really deep question that you raise. And I think that you've hit upon, you know, several of the ingredients that at least come immediately to mind for me too. I mean, on the one hand, we have these technologies that allow us to encode our thoughts. Now imagine you have that object and the ability to copy it and reproduce it and distribute it at scale. Now think of there's one creator who may be in one place making art, um, writing down their discoveries, but imagine all of the different minds they could reach with that single object. And I think that those technologies for copying and distribution of those objects, I think is clearly very likely to have been a really um, important contributor to the acceleration of the kind of rate of discovery or this um, seeming uh, reduction in the half-life of different movements and art, um, as well as these kind of social institutions and practices that you're um, talking about. You alluded to the salon period and these different practices by which different communities emerged that um, uh, interacted in a dense way with one another. Um, the ability to connect people in <laughs> real-time interactions is really something that can um, lead to new interesting places. I'm thinking of the very conversation that we're having, of course, right? This is a conversation we could be having at a distance, in correspondence, in writing, um, but the ability to have a dialogue and to communicate so fluidly is really, um, you know, takes us in new directions that none of us maybe in isolation would be able to get to. Now you imagine it's not just the three of us, but there are 30 of us or 300 of us interacting you know, I think that those kinds of cultural institutions are very likely to also be a really important factor to take into account when thinking about the rate of historical change um, in movements in art and perhaps um, also in the way that um, these technologies have accelerated progress in science. Maybe this is a little bit of a stretch of uh, a metaphor, but it repeatedly comes into my mind, this idea of like phase transitions, metaphors from physics and chemistry, even like you've got the idea that there might be reactions that happen spontaneously, but they take a really, really long time. But if you put in this sort of initial activation energy, and maybe that's from some technology that allows us to have conversations in real time, but that's when you really get the sort of density that you need for everything to just explode and you get these rapid progressions of, of movements. So I know that's a really sort of abstract one, but I think about it a lot. Yeah. And would, is it all right if I... Oh, reactive. Yeah. The, <laughs> yeah, I think it's, I, you know, um, I think that these different ways of thinking about historical change are super interesting, especially when we're thinking about, you know, scientific discoveries or, um, you know, the change in art, you know, movements in art. 
And, you know, one view might be that these are all a bunch of ingredients, throw them into the pot, and then you have faster, gradual change, but it accelerates. And another idea um, that I take you to be proposing is that there's something of a, a, an activation barrier that once you reach or overcome, it really unleashes a whole flurry of possibility and activity that like wouldn't have been possible if conditions were even slightly different. And I think that you know, there's some work from the historian of science, uh, Peter Gallison, on this question of, you know, how and why at the turn of the 20th century do we see these sea changes in the way that physicists are thinking about the nature of space and time? And I think one of the points to grossly simplify <laughs> the narrative and the argument that he's giving in his books is um, that that somehow the real world challenges that people were grappling with at the time. It wasn't simply that you had figures like Albert Einstein sitting by themselves, pondering these questions deeply, but that Einstein was working in a patent office and thinking about real engineering challenges, practical societal challenges of how do you, how do you design schedules so that railroads running across Europe run on time? And don't hit each other when you're crossing so many different time zones. Really practical problems like these can really um, lead to the kinds of conditions that unlock the, the drive or, or need that um, you know, a society may have to take certain questions really seriously. And that can lead to really fundamental discoveries. Mm. I, I love that. Um, it, it, um, the, the emphasis on kind of practical problems and historical context and how things like mass transportation, you know, um, the first we had like railroads and then uh, ocean liners and uh, and and then eventually the, the automobile and airplanes might have changed how we thought about space and time. Um, you know, the, the world wars changed how we thought about art and society and how we relate to each other. So th this idea is kind of taking aim or at least challenging in some way the notion that art is sort of this distinct thing rather than mm -hmm. something that's just really part and parcel of the human experience. Mm -hmm. It can't be separated, mm -hmm. you know, the, it can't be separated from the basic ways that we represent information, the, the, how we communicate. So art being one way that we communicate our minds to one another uh, and also mm -hmm. deeply connected the way that we represent the world, whether it's through symbols or language or drawings or music or, or something else is so deeply connected to um, history, to politics, to sociology, to culture, to technology. And so I, I love what you're saying there because it just reminds me how interconnected the things are and that we kind of construct these artificial boundaries around things like art mm -hmm. uh, and then start to treat yeah. them as separate when in fact they're really, they're really not. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a beautiful idea. And I think that, you know, in some ways it may have been, you know, only in recent, relatively recent times, maybe in the past few hundred years that we've come to think um, perhaps that um, science and the world of science is somehow apart from society and should be closed off from the kinds of conversations that citizens may have about how their state ought to function. And, you know, for this, I'm, you know, I'm reminded of some of the work by the historian of science, um, Stephen Chapin, on this topic and the invention of the idea that, say, for example, political questions or political controversies ought not interfere with the kinds of conclusions that 
we draw from scientific investigations and vice versa, that somehow scientists and, and science operate somehow outside of separately um, related to, but distinct from the rest of society. And I think, you know, a lot of what you're saying resonates with me with respect to that axis, that the desire to know and to understand the world that we live in is, is really embedded um, into the, the, the way that our, our minds work. And that the, and as you say, that the, um, desire maybe to create, to create art and to be, and the ability, the capacity to be moved by art and to think new thoughts and feel new feelings um, when engaging with art is not something that, you know, only experts in the rarefied art world get to experience, but really it's something for everyone. And I think remembering that and reminding ourselves of that is really important, especially now with everything seemingly so fragmented and potentially siloed today. I definitely want to return to that idea of the experience and the motivation to create and appreciate art. So put a pin in that. Um, but before we get there, I want to actually get a little bit deeper into your research. So when we think about drawings, whether they're ancient cave art or modern cartoons, one common feature is that they're not typically photorealistic or they don't have to be. We don't need to draw every single detail of a bird for us to be able to recognize a simple sketch as a bird. But when you think about just how different drawings of the same object can be and how different those drawings can be from the actual real object that they're representing, it's very mysterious exactly how our brains can achieve recognition. So can you talk a little bit about how you set out to answer this question uh, and what your research has found? Yeah, sure thing. So one thing that many of us take for granted is that somehow our brains transform the zillions, I think that's the right order of magnitude, the zillions of points of light flooding into our eyes um, and transform them into the perceptual experiences that we have of being in a place, seeing one another, recognizing all of the objects around us. Um, and yet, Despite the fact that this is an incredibly complicated feat of information processing, it feels totally effortless to us. Like we hardly even think about how we know what we're looking at most of the time. And this feeling extends for many of us to sketches, illustrations, cartoons, and other kinds of non-photorealistic imagery. So think of every Disney movie ever, any other animated film you like. It doesn't seem like a big deal to perceive an animated cartoon of a meerkat as a meerkat, even when, come on, like Timon and the Lion King is not the most faithful rendering of what most meerkats look like. No offense. Um, and this raises a puzzle. Like how, how can this be? Um, so there basically been two dominant ways of thinking about this problem. Um, the first is that we understand what drawings mean, what drawings represent, basically because line drawings are ways of trying to capture the, the edges or the, the outline of an object. And since drawings, um, you know, kind of line up with the outline of an object, like that's how we know what a drawing is of, like we're doing that in our minds. Um, the second school of thought is that we know what drawings mean only as a matter of social convention, meaning we have to learn from other people around us which kinds of marks go with which kinds of meanings. And when we started going down this path, you know, our main insight was that this 
problem of trying to understand, you know, what drawings represent was very similar to the computational problem that a big part of our brains known as the ventral visual stream is also trying to solve the problem of how to make sense of what we're looking at. Um, and today, our best accounts of what this part of the brain is doing um, belongs to the family of um, what are known as deep convolutional neural network models, um, which are a kind of um, computer program that learns from examples how to see. And we discovered that these kinds of models, these, these computer programs, provide a compelling basis for explaining how and why we perceive drawings as looking like things. Um, in other words, despite many informal drawings not being quite simply like edge-based copies of realistic photos, um, they still share many of the key visual properties that are um, invariant within a category. In other words, they're characteristic of a particular concept or category. Um, so you can think of this work as supporting a, a you know um, updated, souped-up visual resemblance account of how pictures encode meaning. And this was work, I should say, um, done in collaboration with uh, Dan Yamans and Nick Turk-Brown while finishing up my PhD. And this really got things going for me because it really raised a whole host of new questions about drawing and symbolic communication now that we had a way of thinking about it as somehow continuous um, and deeply rooted in um, the basic machinery in our brains that help us make sense of the world more generally. And another thing I really like about that line of work is that it shows the sort of reciprocal benefits of uh, cognitive science, cognitive neuroscience, insights from more of the psychology side of things, and then all of these innovations on the machine learning and artificial intelligence side of things. Uh, back in the day, you know, some of those, the, the AI models were inspired by a loose understanding of how, how the visual system worked, but your work really captures how they can have a sort of uh, dialogue and, and advance one another. Um, so yeah, that's, we're, I'm going to ask you a little bit more about your collaborations later, but this, this paper in particular shows that you're borrowing those methods, um, which we're borrowing <laughs> from psychology in the first place. Yeah. And if I might just insert a, a brief reaction that we may also return to in the future, which is that in some ways, this resurgence in dialogue between computer scientists, machine learning researchers, and psychologists and social scientists is, is really, I think, a way of returning to our roots. Um, um, in the, the early to mid 20th centuries, in some ways, at the very dawn of, of computer science, these weren't really yet distinct fields. The study of how the mind worked and how the mind learned and made decisions or reasoned through different problems and thinking about how to instantiate those same abilities in machines were really questions that Alan Turing grappled with. It was what behavioral scientists at the time were also grappling with. And I think that it was really only in the, roughly speaking, latter half of the 20th century that these communities diverged and then, you know, over, over the decades, they've converged and diverged, you know, several, several more times. And I, you know, I think that of the work that we're doing as, as reflecting this return to um, the, you know, the really fundamental and, and, and deeply uh, shared kinds of questions. These are questions that, you know, really gave rise to these seemingly really disconnected disciplines today. Yeah. So I, 
made the transition from academia to tech about three years ago. And I, I wouldn't say it's actually a clean transition. I'm still, still have one foot solidly in academia, <laughs> but um, I'm, I'm surrounded with a lot of researchers who have, uh, you know, varied backgrounds, but because the innovations in machine learning um, and artificial intelligence have been happening for decades now. There are a lot of researchers who've kind of lost touch with the the origins and they are very specialized, which is super important. We need people who are very specialized um, and sort of developing new architectures and things like that. But it is it does feel like we're now at a time where the sort of the, the disciplines of psychology uh, and, and and cognitive neuroscience have also matured mm-hmm. and we need to be developing a new layer of common ground between the mm-hmm. machine learning scientists and the folks who have the background in the actual brain and computational, <laughs> the way that it works. So my long-term goal um, of being a Googler is actually to help facilitate that exchange and, and maybe come up with new common ground Uh, history ebbs and flows in that way of specialization and integration, I think. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I I think that's really exciting. And in a lot of ways, the work that we do is well aligned with that, with that goal, you know? Yeah. And and that might be something that surprises the the listener here, Mm -hmm. because most of us, you know, who who have completely different fields outside of science and technology, we live our lives and maybe never even ask the question, how come I can look at a cartoon um, meerkat and and understand that as something out in the world that I've seen on on a Discovery Channel video or something? How is it that my brain actually does that? What is the mechanism? What's going on? Why is that happening? Mm-hmm. Um, and those questions actually are of interest to the scientists and also the technologists who are building right. the technologies that maybe find their way back into our everyday lives. Uh, this could be artificial intelligence. If we if we one day have, you know, artificially intelligent holograms or robots, it's because we deconstructed and reconstructed these features of the mind that are uh, maybe mysterious to us right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is, you know, that that we hardly think about how it is that we know what a cartoon is representing um, really got us. So there's a really a charming story of a group of AI researchers in the 50s who set about to hold a summer school, um, um, a a kind of pop-up summer institute of scientists and engineers. And their goal was to build a system, you know, their ultimate goal is, of course, to build a system that emulated human cognition and behavior. Um, And they thought, well, a really great place to start would be to understand visual perception. Visual perception feels really easy. Let's just um, knock that out this summer and then we'll be done with it. And we can move on to the really interesting problems like how we play chess. And it turns out to be exactly backwards that learning how to play chess and thinking about the different moves that you could make in this game are exactly those kinds of activities that um, (laughs) feel really hard to many of us. And yet the uh, ability to understand what we're looking at feels really easy, but ended up taking the rest of the 20th century and then some to really start to make um, meaningful progress on. Right. The, the robots are already and have been for a long time beating us at chess. Um, 
They but, still can move gracefully across the floor. <laughs> yeah. And Google image search doesn't always know what we're looking for and feeds us back images yeah. thinking, you know, is, is this a cat? And, and you right. know, um, so yeah, that's, exactly. that's actually a fascinating anecdote. That's a great story. <laughs> so to return uh, to some more of your research in the visual domain, in situations where there's some kind of visual resemblance, um, yours and others' work has shown that we can achieve some kind of recognition of an object category. So what about in the case of very abstract diagrams? For example, I'm thinking about pre-COVID when I was in the Google offices and we had these huge whiteboards and you get a bunch of people together and they'd take an hour to just fill the, the, the whiteboard with colorful diagrams. We would take our corp devices and <laughs> take a picture of them. And that was critical for us to converge on some sort of common understanding for uh, an engineering problem in our experimental design. But I go back and look at some of those and I can't for the life of me make sense of them because they were so abstract. Um, so how were those abstract drawings able to be meaningful without the benefit of clear visual resemblance to real world objects? That's a fabulous question and super relatable. I swear, even though I do the very same thing and try to take photos of our whiteboard in the lab, um, it's incredibly hard to look back months later and suss out what we were talking about. Um, and, and so um, inspired by this question, um, my collaborators, Robert Hawkins, Mike Wu, and Noah Goodman come in. Uh, Noah had come to give a talk while I was finishing up uh, my PhD um, and working on the paper I was just telling you about. And he was sharing work on how um, they were making progress on these really thorny questions in linguistics in parallel, namely how people converge on common meaning when they talk, even when the literal meanings of the words people say don't seem to be sufficient. And this was these were ideas that um, themselves were inspired by the writings of the philosopher Paul Greif. Um, and this really opened my eyes as a vision scientist up to this puzzle lying right at the heart of this question of how simple line drawings convey meaning. Why do we create such different kinds of drawings? Gould's finches in some cases, and these really abstract whiteboard sketches in other settings. How do we get away with such abstract drawings in certain scenarios? So to make progress on that question, uh, we designed an experimental paradigm reminiscent of Pictionary, where we paired people up on the internet, total strangers to be clear, uh, to communicate with one another using a digital whiteboard. And the way this game works, both participants were looking at a set of four objects, um, which we called the context. Think of this as the, you know, kind of the set of different ideas that you and I might have in our minds if we're taking a crack at one of those engineering problems together in front of a whiteboard. Um, basically, the different concepts in common ground. One player in that game, um, who we called the sketcher, had to produce a sketch of one of these objects that their partner, the viewer, could figure out which object they were referring to. And what we found was that people were exquisitely sensitive to context when producing their drawings. They were able to exploit information in common ground to get their point across, allowing them to get away with much simpler drawings when they could, if they knew it would be sufficient, but you know, create more elaborate detailed drawings when that was really necessary. And we think this because we developed a computational model that cared about being informative, 
while also being concise and discovered that both of those factors really mattered for explaining the way that actual people behaved in our experiment, in our Pictionary game. Um, and the way that this connects back to the collaborative whiteboarding session example is that this information and common ground is perhaps what we're exploiting when we're making these really informal drawings in real time, and possibly also what we're losing when we can't make sense of it later, that, we're, that we've forgotten what was in that common ground at the time. Mm. That actually just caused me to wonder about how uh, different. Have you noticed any uh, degrees in facility of communication, uh, communication through symbols and abstractions, say, if it's your best friend, your family unit, your I don't know, your neighborhood or your region of country? Um, I'm, so I'm thinking about broader and broader circles of, of groups of people. And wondering if we have if the more context we have, the more uh, information that we share in our environment, the easier it is to communicate. Is there research and data to suggest that? Do we actually have visual symbols that translate better when it's with people we know or kind of like in language where we have certain quirks that work with our friends, but our parents would have no idea what we're referring to? (laughs) That's, that sounds basically right to me. And in fact, what you're describing um, are the kinds of phenomena that uh, psycholinguists and other researchers in psychology have been really fascinated by for a number of years and decades. Um, basically, how it is that we infer what our audience, the person we're interacting with, knows, care about cares about when figuring out what we want to say. And there have been numerous studies looking at those kinds of effects, um, how, how familiar you are with an you know, with a certain individual or whether you've been interacting with them for a period of time or you just met them, whether you know that they're also from their same hometown or not. Um, these are really important factors that affect how people figure out the way they're going to talk to each other. And in our own work in my lab, we've essentially imported those insights into uh, the question of how graphical conventions form. So we've done some work looking at four relative strangers who've never interacted before, don't know who one another is, but are playing this game with one another. Even on the first round, with the work that I was just telling you about, they are decently good. You people can play Pictionary and it can go fine. But if you let them keep interacting with each other, even these strangers over the course of something like 15, 20 minutes can actually develop new ad hoc graphical conventions or shorthand kind of graphical visual slang, if you will, that captures um, the kinds of meanings that they find themselves needing to continue referring back to over and over again. And we can observe this in the kinds of drawings they make. They get sparser um, and they get sparser in a way that, you know, someone who just entered the room looking at it may not know exactly what what they're referring to. But if you're in the room and you're part of that interaction, you you can. So this is something that seems to be a really critical um, you know, factor at multiple timescales, at these um, societal timescales over really large communities, but also over these really short timescales, even when you're inter- you know, interacting with someone over the course of a few minutes. 
that's auspicious. It suggests maybe that humans are built to uh, understand or be driven to understand and that we get better at it uh, even over short periods of, of time interacting. That's that's actually a very hopeful message or, or at least suspicion. I, yeah, I had a similar thought thinking about, you know, it's it's not just across modalities like language or graphical representations, but also, uh, you know, in the individual moment, the individual context, and then over time, evolutionary time within generations, across all of these um, different levels, we are motivated to get what's in our mind into others' mind and to understand what's in others' mind in the way that we can. And that seems to be sort of the fundamental thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it, it certainly seems to be something that if if it isn't unique in humans, it's certainly like on steroids. <laughs> it's really something that's very, very salient in our own behavior is our drive and ability to communicate, understand one another um, and really figure out how to how to interact and get along with the with the with with the people around us. Right. So continuing a little bit further with uh, your research, um, as adults, we often take for granted both the way that we experience the world, as well as our ability to seamlessly communicate our experiences with others, our ability to just spontaneously come up with common ground. But it's actually not trivial how we achieve this common ground. We, we only have to think back to our childhoods to remember how different things felt to us and how strange certain concepts were when we first learned them. I'm thinking of when I first learned how to tell time from non-digital clocks, and it, was, it felt like a categorical shift in how I <laughs> represented things. Um, so you've recently done some developmental work looking at children's drawing abilities and their visual recognition skills. Can you tell us about the study that you designed and what you found? So I'll start off by saying, truly one of the best parts of science is how collaborative it is. Speaking of the drive to get our thoughts you know, out there into the world and to interact with other people, you know, this was, this is, this project was such a treat. And I've been telling you about all of these um, really collaborative projects. This is no exception. So I partnered with Bria Long and really Bria led this work um, as well as Mike Frank. And we took inspiration from decades of work in developmental and clinical psychology that had been clearly fascinated by how children draw and what it could tell us about what they know and how they felt and so on. However, in many cases, we noticed that many of the conclusions being drawn were usually based on relatively small scale studies, small in terms of the number of different items used as stimuli presented to children, small in terms of the number of children that were recruited involved in the study. Um, moreover, different papers were often using different criteria to judge or score drawings for various properties that were highly specific to the stimuli they were using. So a famous example of this is the draw a person test. It is exactly what it sounds like. You're supposed to draw a person. Um, while there's a rubric that you can use um, um, to evaluate line drawings of people made by younger people, children, it's not clear whether the components of this rubric really truly correspond to the core fundamental underlying components of 
general purpose mental representations that apply more generally to other sorts of behaviors or even other drawing tasks? Or if so, how they do. Um, so both of these methodological limitations really has made it hard to test theories of how graphic development and visual development were related to each other in general. Um, so what we did is we uh, collaborated with one of the local children's science museums in San Jose, California, um, the Children's Discovery Museum, AKA the Purple Museum, and asked if we could install a drawing kiosk um, that kids could interact with in much the same way they interact with other exhibits at the museum. And we essentially loaded up um, an iPad with two different games uh, that we built in-house. There was a drawing game and then a guessing game um, that happened to use drawings as the, as the, as the targets. Um, and we released this game <laughs> um, and made it available to the broader community, to the public. Um, we included 48 different categories and as you can imagine, this is a pretty fun activity for kids. So we were able to recruit over 8,000 children spanning a huge age range between two and 10 years of age um, who collectively contributed over 37,000 drawings. Um, and what we found was that improvement in children's ability to make meaningful drawings, to make recognizable drawings was quite gradual throughout this entire age range from through early and middle childhood. It didn't seem like something that came online all of a sudden. And moreover, when taking our uh, drawing data and the data from the guessing game together, you know, while you might think that children might learn to recognize things and their visual systems or ability to make sense of what they're looking at really um, um, emerges uh, early and robustly. And once they learn these different uh, concepts, that's, they can, um, uh, they're simply set uh, for the rest of their lives. And that drawing is really the harder task that learning how to see and um, make, and, 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 and perceive distinctions between different images is, is really easy and emerges early, but it can take years and years to develop the kind of motor control and fluency or maybe the executive function, like the ability to stay on task. And that can lead to a really protracted developmental um, trajectory for, for drawing behaviors. But instead, what we found is that both of these two different behaviors, both visually grounded, um, but quite distinct, seem to develop at approximately uh, in parallel throughout this entire age range, um, suggesting that these abilities being as complex as they are really, um, really do develop over over the course of many years and, you know, isn't the kind of thing that one wakes up one morning is suddenly an expert at. So um, in addition to those insights, another reason why all of us are really excited about this work is that we think that this resource, this, this data set of over 37,000 drawings can be really helpful um, to other researchers thinking about cognitive development, um, thinking about visual development, um, working in education to, to, to use as a basis for testing their own scientific questions. So um, stay tuned. That's going to be um, publicly available very soon. And 
just a plug for 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 that when it um, when it comes out. That's fantastic. I wasn't aware that you were also coming out with this this data set. Um, I mean, that's the direction that science needs to be moving in, right? <laughs> Incorporating yeah. a wider representation, sort of like citizen science, bringing it into the public sphere, and then making it accessible for other scientists who might be able to leverage it for completely different research questions. Yeah, well, it also brings to mind, for me, just sort of broader, as, as the political scientist, it, it suggests that... Um, we might think twice about, you know, cutting arts funding <laughs> as the first thing that goes when when um, when we need to tighten up uh, school budgets and curriculum design and things like that. It sounds, you know, we all we might think of a child drawing as uh, frivolous play. Um, what I think Steven Pinker maybe earlier in his career referred to as cognitive cheesecake when, when talking about art. But, but, <laughs> but actually what they're doing a bit more resembles the kind of cognitive training that children are often engaged in, unbeknownst to themselves, of course, but uh, ways of kind of making sense of the world and honing your skills to be a more effective human. In this case, someone who can understand uh, the communicative function of symbols and drawings and, and uh, their ability to make and infer from abstractions, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I likewise, um, I also think it's a bit sad how many of us think of ourselves as growing out of drawing or painting once we learn how to write, right? That these kind of creative activities, really generative behaviors that can play a really important role in learning and um, in exploration um, somehow has not been fully recognized in the way that, you know, current elementary school curricula and high school curricula and curricula in higher education have been designed um, with their priority on, you know, certain kinds of intellectual activities that really count as intellectual and other kinds of activities that are somehow apart from, <laughs> um, learning and, you know, uh, uh, you know, human scholarship and learning. Yeah, I thoroughly agree with that. Uh, so one of the reasons that I think developmental work is so important is because it provides a window into evolution. And so my own PhD work examined very young infants, three to six month olds, abilities to uh, link speech and speech-like sounds to core cognitive capacities as a way to provide clues about the evolutionary origins of the link between language and thought. And of course, it was a lot of fun to do that work because what I was actually doing was playing babies, monkey calls, other animal calls, backward speech, foreign languages, okay. things like that. Um, but what we found was that infants' perceptual advances actually helped them establish links between certain sounds and meaning. So babies' increasing fluency in, in processing some sounds, like the sounds of their native language, drove their ability to form multisensory representations, and these representations in turn shape their perceptual processing of the sounds. And so my question for you is, do you think that drawing might be similar? Do you think children's predisposition to draw and then their trajectory, their, their prolonged trajectory um, for drawing abilities and represent, representing visual objects might provide clues about the evolution of, of art in our ancestors. Wow, that's a really fascinating question. And to be honest, I have I can only go out on a limb here because I truly have no data to speak to this question right now, unlike you. <laughs> and, um, you know, based on my own limited understanding of art history, you know, I think one of the major insights of the last century was that 
having realistic depiction be the one and only standard by which visual art be judged is really the exception rather than the rule. Um, and that the techniques for producing realistic looking images um, and the value placed upon them, you know, like really emerged quite late, um, even if it seems to lots of us like it must have always been this way. And something that I find really amazing about children's drawings is just how evocative and meaningful they can be um, without really having to be drawn in perspective. Um, and this perhaps makes it a lot less surprising that, you know, so many different artistic traditions across the millennia have similarly not found realism, particularly aesthetically or culturally relevant, um, but that whatever that interaction is between seeing, understanding, knowing and producing and generating that those um, have gone in really different directions in different communities over time. And that is a wonderful thing to recognize and acknowledge about the diversity of ways that humans know and understand their lives. Um, so again, I, I, I do think it's, it's unfortunate that in our current times that um, thinking of uh, drawing production and visual understanding, um, you know, that these two activities aren't thought of as being as tightly linked as they have been, you know, throughout, throughout the um, course of, of human history. And that we think of drawing or, or painting or sculpture or the other visual arts is somehow requiring like really special talent or, or uh, only expertise rather than what it is like a common inheritance and really one of the oldest, most accessible and versatile technologies that we humans share. Yeah, I think music researchers make similar claims about music and how we we think of musicians now as very highly trained individuals who learn how to play their specific instruments that only were recently invented in the past couple of hundred years. But actually, when we look at other societies um, and we make inferences about what a lot of societies might have been like a couple of thousand years ago, everybody had music, everybody sang and danced and, and this was just culturally ubiquitous. Um, so it hints at the idea that music and I think what you're saying, drawing and other artistic predispositions may really be, uh, if not hardwired, early emerging and culturally ubiquitous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. exactly. Um, so I'd like to invite you to continue to speculate. <laughs> uh, in, in a talk that you gave at DC, you discussed three features of the human mind that enabled drawing to really take off. Uh, one, visual perception, two, social reasoning, and three, action selection. Do you think these three things might comprise a generalizable template for uh, the developmental or evolutionary origins of art uh, more, more generally? So I'm thinking about music, again, if... Uh, if we're using that template, it would be auditory perception and then also social reasoning and action selection. Um, we just touched upon the role of perceptual advances. So in terms of the other two, might action selection be necessary for the refinement of artistic techniques and innovation within a per particular cultural framework? And might social reasoning be involved in using art as a communicative tool? Yeah, this is a really fascinating and thought-provoking extension to music um, and a, maybe a way to think about the origins of art. You know, so I, I, I imagine 
art is encompassing, you know, is being in addition to being a cognitive tool, also an affective tool, um, but which I mean, is, is, is being moving and evoking a feeling beyond informing us um, or, you know, being used to exchange information with others. And, and to be honest, I, I will not pretend that I have a fully formed testable theory of, of music or the origins of art. Um, I'll defer to musicologists and my colleagues who really study visual aesthetics and music as such. But what I do find fascinating is how we're somehow able to tell that certain sounds appear to have been made intentionally, like a beating drum or a strummed guitar or a voice singing, and which sounds were not. Um, and this ability to make those inferences about the presence of another person, another in intentional agent in the world, um, based on the kinds of sounds they make or the visual traces they leave behind, seems like a really crucial ingredient for explaining the ability to appreciate art, is knowing that this wasn't incidental, it wasn't just the product of some uh, other uh, process like the weather, but there was somebody here who made this and that really being a precursor to any of these different um, artistic modalities. As far as action selection, um, I, I guess I think about it in quite the same way that, you know, whenever we sit down to create something, uh, maybe it's a new picture um, or when we're about to write something down, make a podcast or whatever, um, whether we're aware of it or not, the kind of thing that we make is constrained by the kind of medium that we're working with and the tools that we're using to work in that medium, which is what I mean by action selection. So if we're painting our paintbrush and the uh, height and width of our canvas really make a difference for the kinds of, um, you know, the kinds of things we can express um, and how we're going to express those ideas and feelings. Um, or if we're working in a digital medium, um, the mouse that we're using or the keyboard or the way the user interface is laid out can really interact with and influence the kinds of um, objects that we think to create that are natural to create. And so as our techniques and tools for creating things have, of course, dramatically changed, expanded over time, um, it's, I think, really important to consider how how that interface, how those devices, um, you know, both constrain, but also unlock different forms of expression. That's fascinating. If, if I could just yeah, respond please. there. Um, so the first thing that I noted was you're talking about art as having an affective uh, quality as well as an informative quality. And I I like the the idea of affective when I think, you know, I'm an amateur musician um, in my experience, having played with other musicians when you're really on and you're just kind of improvising uh, when it's really on. You feel like your minds are linked up. You mm -hmm. feel like you're you're sending ideas back and forth. Um, it's not necessarily through language. We tend to think of language as communication, uh, you know, whether it's written or whether it's oral. Uh, but there are so many other ways to communicate and they might not communicate something specific. They might not communicate something in great detail, and we can't quite be sure that we're getting a one-to-one, -one. Mm -hmm. uh, but they communicate something. When I listen to Eric Satie, for example, I'm, I feel like I'm hearing jokes that have traveled across time uh, because my expectations <laughs> are awesome. being set up and then violated, and, that, and it's kind of in a cheeky way. 
uh, you know, he was, uh, Sati was kind of a cheeky fellow. And so I feel like there, there are things that are kind of communicated in there in in music uh, and also in, in drawings and, and abstract art. And, uh, and so insofar as there is a communicative function of, of art, uh, it, it, that sort of leads me to think about this broader idea of linking minds and you're talking about technologies and interfaces that that's sort of where you ended your, your response. And it, you know, one of the things that we're so interested in doing on the productive side of, of oscillations, uh, you know, beyond the podcast, we're involved in this production work with creative technologies and artists is, you know, we're working with technologies like brain computer interfaces and virtual and augmented reality. And you're talking about how the, the tools that we create with constrain uh, what we make. And so what interests me the most about especially virtual reality, where it intersects with brain computer interfaces, is that we might be approaching tools where we can kind of not just send a, a thought. You know, uh, there's a lot of work in brain computer interfaces where you're thinking and it's writing. We, you know, we have the, the, the jaw conductance and uh, we're sending written information. But you can also imagine when brain computer interfaces and technologies like imagery construction, where we're decoding your brain electricity and rendering photo and video, um, when these things converge, brain computer interfaces, imagery construction, virtual augmented reality, we're going to have a medium for artistic creation where we are sending almost a fully visual idea from one person to another using, using our imagination alone. And this this goes way beyond art as a as a creative medium. This this could actually change the the course of evolution in how in terms of how humans co-evolve with technology and how we even communicate. We might even in the same way that we moved into language as a sort of dominant form of communication and writing as a dominant form of communication, we might actually move into something more visual someday. Mm. I love contemplating those possibilities, all the ones that you just raised. Um, So as it happens, when I was in grad school, a lot of the cognitive neuroscience work that was happening around me um, was uh, focused on developing techniques for decoding or reading out from um, neural measurements. So um, measurements of what the brain is doing at any point in time as someone is thinking or imagining or reading or remembering and really trying to understand in real time what they're thinking about. And uh, these experiments um, and a lot of this uh, work developing the methods focused on the Um, the statistical techniques, the machine learning algorithms and optimizing those, um, writing the code to process the signals from our MRI machine at the rate that we would need in order to be able to do those computations in real time, um, and also show them back to the participants in these studies. Something that I think that was underappreciated in that work was the format or the, the, the form that that real-time neurofeedback might take. So for example, in some of these studies, um, if someone was thinking, was looking at an image and that image was a blend of, of two different things, say someone's face, but it was, is blended with an image of, let's say, a, a two-story house, um, that person might be asked to 
focus really hard on the picture of the house and not the face. And based on um, the uh, real-time measurements uh, from their brains as they were doing that, um, the researchers changed how those images appear, making them either more visible and easier to see or harder to see. And that's something that um, perhaps for, uh, you know, this was a study intended to understand the neural mechanisms of visual attention, how people pay attention, how they can stay paying attention to what they want to pay attention to over time, and how you might train that ability using that kind of neurofeedback. But the kind of ways that the image that participants were shown change was really simplistic, right? You were changing, you know, for aficionados, like the alpha value on one of these images, and that was it. And if you could imagine you know, if we had involved um, people who worked in graphics or in art in this project, how, what are other ways that you can imagine visualizing our thoughts, right? So what if, you know, instead of these fairly simple operations that you might perform over images, moving it to the left, moving it to the right, making it bigger, making it smaller, making it more or less transparent, are there other kinds of visual idioms or are there other kinds of ways that we could externalize or think about how we might visualize um, our thoughts or feelings in a way that makes sense to people that go beyond some of these really simple image processing techniques? And for that, I mean, I immediately think of all the all of visual art that has found a way to do exactly that transform private thoughts and feelings that may not be directly visible into something that is really immediate and visceral and and visible so um I, you know i think there's really room for much more substantive collaborations between visual artists and um, individuals working in graphics with machine learning researchers and cognitive neuroscientists towards building the kind of, you know, mind reading and maybe like tools to build empathy <laughs> um, for others than we have right now. And for making all of that, all of those hidden thoughts and feelings, you know, really concrete and tangible and um, um, immediate. So I'm so glad that I'm you said you. that, and that you put it that way. I mean, we, I think we're on the same wavelength here in thinking about the, the value that creative minds, that artists can bring to the table. It's an underutilized value. Brendan and I think a lot about what some maybe not too distant future, like maybe in our lifetimes would, would look like if some of these technologies do advance and then converge and we are able to kind of share what's in our mind's eye. Well, we take for granted that other people see things 
sufficiently similar to to the way that we think. But I mean, you just have to look at the diversity of, of art to see that actually what's in our inner worlds is quite different. <laughs> There's a huge amount of neurodiversity and it will be so important given that there are these reciprocal interactions, these sort of feedback loops between what we put out into the world and then how we perceive things. And then that shapes our interactions. It'll be so important that we have individuals like artists who are in these spaces early on and you know, providing access into how they visualize things and how they see the world. And that might be not representative of the average. And so they're there to sort of inspire us all and, and help scaffold the development of these technologies. You might even say that as we as information continues, the, the collective human knowledge pool continues to grow and information starts to outpace society, uh, certainly any one person's ability to understand, but even society and and uh, political bodies yeah. to to assimilate and understand and compute all of this information that not only are we going to have to co-evolve with, say, artificial intelligence and machine learning, but also in how we communicate large amounts of information, how we distill, distill. things down yeah. into also, you know, visual symbols and then how we communicate those things to one another. And I do think that beyond, you know, lightsabers and zombie shooters, uh, there's maybe a more important role for some of these creative technologies and visual technologies of the future uh, than, you know, than just kind of gaming and chopping (laughs) at monsters with lightsabers and things. Yes. Um, We often ask our guests whether they think that art is communicative I certainly think that art is communicative. It sounds like <laughs> from all of the work that, that you've done um, that you you definitely think of these cognitive technologies as playing a communicative role. So I just push that a little further and ask, do you think that in the same way that we've evolved all of these abilities uh, to, to be able to get what's in our minds into other minds, we might have also evolved a drive, a motivation to do so, and that that might be something that really defines uh, human nature. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really intriguing hypothesis. I mean, um, I mean, certainly it seems reasonable to me to think that our drive to link our minds together has been really strong throughout the story of human evolution. The drive to cooperate and share our mental lives with one another through language and gesture to achieve um, shared ends, you know, was really strong well before we invented tools to do so using cognitive tools or these physical artifacts. And I think it's a fabulous question, you know, what drives us to produce art? Um, And there's one view, you know, cherished in in some circles of the lone artist, scientist, or other creator who creates for themselves and to satisfy their own internal drives, rather than to share these products with others, to communicate with others. And while that may explain some kinds of art or, or some creators, another view is that many of our most cherished activities, especially in the arts and sciences, are driven by and depend crucially on the interest and drive, as you say, to share our creations with others, in addition to satisfying our own aesthetic vision or our own curiosity, as the case may be. Mm, I couldn't agree more. Well, thank you, Professor Fan, so much for your time and your extremely thoughtful responses. Um, This has been so much fun, and we really look forward to uh, continuing the discussion at some point in the future. Thanks so much for having me. (laughs) I really enjoyed this conversation. 